Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Talking Terror, brought to you by the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre here at the University of East London. I'm John Morrison. This podcast was recorded at, uh, on October 2nd, 2017 at 3.34 GMT. This is in the hours after the horrific shooting in Las Vegas. The information is still coming out uh, uh, about the the motives uh, of the shooter. So it's really unclear at the moment whether this was a terrorism-related attack or not, who was responsible or not. So because of this, we are unable to cover uh, the details of this attack um, in today's podcast, as I'm sure you'll have so much more information by the time that you're listening to this podcast uh, with us. As always, if you want to get further information about the research we do here, the work we do here at the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre, be sure to check out our website, uel.ac.uk slash terc, and follow us on Twitter at terc-uel, tweeting at us with the hashtag TalkingTerror. We'll be updating information about upcoming episodes of the podcast, uh, different research we do here at Turk, and our exciting new book series with IB Taurus. So, without further ado, it's a great honour for me to introduce today's guest. Uh, today I'll be interviewing and talking to Dr. Gary Lafree, who's the director of the National Consortium for the Study of Terrorism and Responses to Terrorism, better known to many of you as START at the University of Maryland, and he's a professor in the Department of Criminology and Criminal Justice. Gary received his PhD in Sociology from Indiana University in 1979 and is the Fellow of the American Society of Criminology and has served as the President of the ASC in 2005, between 2005 and 2006. He has also served on the Executive Committee of the National Academy of Sciences, Crime, Law and Justice Committee and the National Academy of Sciences Division of Behavioural and Economic Sciences and Education. He was named a Distinguished Scholar Teacher at the University of Maryland in 2012, and much of Gary's research is related to understanding criminal violence, and he is a senior member of the team that created and now maintains the Global Terrorism Database, also known as the GTD. Gary, thank you so much for being on today's podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on board. My pleasure to be here, John. So how did you first become involved in this area of research? From a background in sociology at Indiana University to, to, um, to this analysis of criminal violence and uh, political violence as well. Well, I have to say that in addition to a degree in sociology, I also had an undergraduate degree in history, which I think sort of ruined me for life in a way. It sort of put me on the path of being very interested in archival data analysis. And so pretty much all of the work I've done professionally since I finished my PhD has used documents to examine different types of criminal violence. So I've looked at police records, court records, hospital records, and so on. And back in 2001, one of my graduate students, uh, Doug Loveland, who was an ex-Air Force guy, told me about an archive on terrorism that had been collected by the Pinkerton Global Intelligence Service. This is a relative of the famous Scottish detective agency that uh, used to run stagecoaches in the American West and so on. And uh, so I took the train out to their offices in Northern Virginia and started talking to them. And just by accident, they were planning to shed that part of their business. And uh, basically, there was a whole bunch of these sort of private companies, both in the UK and the United States, that got started after the invention of satellite technology, where you could get some sense of terrorism anywhere in the world. And these companies would hire ex-intelligence officers to work in the unclassified world doing things that uh, before they'd been in the classified world doing. And so, you know, some companies, Xerox is interested in sending some people to Tanzania, and they want to know how dangerous it is. So Pinkerton would sell them that kind of information. And I think more importantly, it was a kind of gateway to sell them other kinds of services. So maybe a dozen of these operating uh, starting in the late 60s, early 70s. And uh, anyway, I talked to them about the data. And it turns out that the really interesting thing about Pinkerton is they'd gathered data not just on international, transnational attacks, which is what all of the other groups had been doing up to this point in time, but they also tried to gather data on domestic attacks. 
And I tried to convince them that uh, the research community would be very interested in, in this kind of information, and I persuaded them to allow us to take their original data and move it to the University of Maryland. And then, you know, shortly after that, 9-11 happened, and I suddenly found myself sitting on probably the richest, certainly the richest unclassified data set on terrorist attacks. So I sort of naively, like looking at the way these data are set up, I essentially have, you know, a bunch of, we have about 125 different characteristics of attacks on, on one side of the graph, and on the other side we have cases. So it looks very much like a typical criminology uh, database. So I'd been working right before that on homicides, on international homicide rates, and I sort of naively at this point thought, well, okay, we'll code this stuff up and, you know, run it through a multivariate analysis, and off off we go. And uh, I think not appreciating just how complicated <laughs> the whole enterprise was going to be. Yeah. But that's really how I got into it, through serendipity. Yeah, and this this database, this development of the database became the Global Terrorism Database, which is continuing uh, to be updated uh, today. And it's um, as as a previous discussion with your colleague, Professor Laura Dugan indicated, I'm sure there are so many of our listeners who have who've used this and are using it at the moment. And one of the things that stands out, I feel, about the GTD, uh, one of many things, is that you're constantly uh, updating researchers on your methodologies, on the differences between different iterations of the of the database and giving them tips along the way and saying this is the correct way to use this database and this is the correct way to use these iterations was that a very conscious decision from from you and your team at the at the time of of analysis and development it really was and uh, it continues to be uh, somewhat i suppose controversial uh, particularly i think many academics uh, i think do not easily share their data and so we've taken this position that I think is it's definitely, I think, good for science. It's a, probably a little bit more difficult for all of our egos <laughs> in the sense that, you know, for example, uh, if your listeners are interested, they can find data uh, through 2016 on our website right now. You can download the entire database uh, quite easily if you just go to our website at start.umd.edu. And... Um, I think it's great from a science standpoint, so that uh, our data are getting now downloaded thousands of times by people around the world. Our website gets something like two to three million hits a year now. And, you know, we didn't have enough bandwidth to do all of the many, many things that could be done with the data. Uh, and so having lots of eyes on it, uh, smart people from all over the place, I think has been a real, a real advantage in terms of actually moving this field forward. Moreover, it serves like a kind of wiki, so if we get something wrong, we're much more likely to hear about it from our user community. And it's not just academics. Uh, Doctors Without Borders uses our data. Uh, the U.S. State Department has been using our data for its unclassified terrorism reports to Congress for the last five or six years. So putting the data out there has been really good. Uh, <clears throat> on the other hand, there's a bit of a Frankenstein element to it for me personally in that the data now get more citations than I do or that Laura does and so on. So it definitely has a life of its own now. Yeah, it's it, and talking there about it's not just being academics uh, who utilize it. You talked about uh, State Department doctors without borders and so on. What, what kind of feedback have you gotten from the non-academic community about the utility of, of the database? What exactly are they using it for? Well, uh, I think probably the primary use is to try to get some assessment of terrorism risk around the world. So, you know, obviously that's the connection with Doctors Without Borders. Mm -hmm. And then government policymakers are very interested in it as well. And I, I think something that I didn't really fully appreciate when this whole enterprise got operating is how important it is to people like <clears throat> you imagine the situation right now in Las Vegas where this horrible event just happened last night so if you're the police chief there the last thing you're gonna have time to do is to look at all of the other attacks that are similar that have similar characteristics that are linked in similar ways so for example after the Boston Marathon attacks we were able to provide the Boston Police Department with all of the Chechen attacks all of the pressure cooker bomber attacks all the attacks on major sporting events 
so that the police and the uh, people in the criminal justice system can get some reliable, objective information and, and instead of having to uh, have their staffs wasting uh, precious time looking into these sorts of objective facts, they can actually concentrate where they should be on solving the case. So we've been helpful, I think, really for policymakers in terms of providing, you know, the. I, I think Laura and I will be the first to admit this is, is not uh, perfect information, but the best information transparently presented that we can come up with at this point in time. Yeah, and there's something that Laura stated in her in her interview. If you, if listeners want to go back to episode two, and it's something I regret not following her up on, is she said that uh, she's uh, she knows that some clandestine organisations have utilised it as well. Have you have you been aware of this, and do you know what they've used it for? Well, I'm sure it's available, and I know we get downloads a lot from places like Russia, and China, uh, Afghanistan, and so on. So. Uh, we don't have, I guess, specific information on, you know, tracking all of the, the uses, licit and illicit. Mm -hmm. But I suspect, uh, you know, the information, I, I think probably we're in a situation where we know so much less about our adversaries than our adversaries know about us that I, I have a feeling that the direction that the benefits flow is, is still pretty much uh, lopsided towards... Uh, towards people trying to prevent terrorism. Yeah, and usually I start these interviews off by asking about the the piece of research that influenced you, but seeing as we're talking about the GTD, you put forward um, as one of your own pieces of key research a book that you uh, did with Laura and your colleague Aaron Miller, Miller as well, putting terrorism in context, insights from the Global Terrorism Database. Could you give our listeners an understanding of what you were trying to achieve with this piece and uh, what you feel that the, the key insights are from the years that you've been um, utilizing and developing this database? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So yes, this the book you refer to is called Putting Terrorism in Context. And the first thing to realize about this is uh, this project really began. I, I was able to first get the data from Pinkerton back in 2000. And this book was published in 2015. So this thing's been percolating for 15 years. <laughs> And uh, it's actually especially challenging to write a book on a data set that's constantly evolving. So every time we'd finish a draft of a section, we had new data to incorporate and update, and, and the picture continues to evolve somewhat. And I think this underscores something that I know is coming out already in your podcast series about just how incredibly complicated terrorism is. So, you know, if terrorism is complicated, naturally collecting data on terrorism, terrorism is also complicated. So uh, by the time the GTD book came out, uh, the GTD book came out, Laura and Aaron and I had done quite a few articles using the data, but many others have also used the data for publication. So we were trying to come up with a book that would kind of get under the hood and get into much more detail than we could go into uh, in the confines of a typical journal article. So um, in terms of, I think, some of the messages we get by looking at uh, the GTD over almost a half century now, and, and particularly looking at how it's evolved since 2001, is first off, um, you have big differences over time. So basically, in the GTD from 1970 to 2016, we see basically three periods, and it's possible we're coming into a fourth period right now. So you see essentially gradual increases in worldwide terrorism from 1970 through the 1980s and then falling off pretty rapidly after about 1991, which I can't prove, but I would guess has to do with the collapse of the Soviet Union and the, the sort of end of the Cold War. So then you have a kind of flat period where uh, it's a sort of a U-shaped where there's a kind of decline after 91 and then a kind of a, a, a flat period. And then you start to track these big increases that are starting in about 2002. And uh, so you have those three sorts of periods. And interestingly, the last two years in the GTD, we've actually seen fairly large declines in worldwide terrorism, about a 22% decrease since the high point in 2014. It's probably a little early to predict whether this is going to be a, a kind of a new major pattern but it's certainly trending in that direction. So first, the sort of big picture is, you know, how these trends look over time. 
another big picture is the spatial characteristics of terrorism over the past half century. You know, because we go for 50 years, we can actually look at how terrorism has evolved over time. And there are huge differences here. And I think probably a lot of the public forgets about these. That, for example, most of the action in terrorism in the GTD in the 1970s was not coming from the Middle East. It was coming from Western Europe and North America. So this was the most active period for terrorism in the United States, in Canada, uh, certainly in Western Europe through groups like the IRA and the ETA and the Red Brigades and so on. So you have a lot of action in Europe in the 70s. Then in the 1980s, the focus moves much more to Latin America. So you've got groups like Sendero Luminoso and the FARC and the FMLN pushing a lot of violence, a lot of terrorism-related violence to Latin America in the 80s. Then there's a kind of a lull that where there's a little bit where no particular region stands out. You're starting to see some action in the Middle East and in Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, you still have quite a bit of action in uh, Latin America. And then finally you have this fourth period where the action moves very decisively to the Middle East, Sub-Saharan Africa, and South Asia. So, in other words, when you talk about terrorism globally, there's, you know, it depends, uh, you know, the, the focus of the region you're interested in is going to depend very much on what period you're looking at. And so I think this is actually a very important thing to get out to, to people as well. Uh, you know, looking at a long stretch of history, too, we are able to track in the GTD something like 2,600 different terrorist organizations so we have a chapter that looks at the lifespan of these organizations. And one of the striking things we find in the book is that uh, the typical terrorist organization lasts for less than a year. Uh, we all know the ISIS and we know the Al-Qaeda's and the IRAs and the ETAs, but I think people uh, would be surprised to see the full list of names, many of them which are not household names. We have a group in there, for example, called the Angry Fishermen that had one attack in Greece and then disappeared from history. So there's a lot of these sort of one-hit wonders uh, so that when you look at terrorist organizations more broadly, they look much more like business startups, that they tend to uh, come into existence and go away very rapidly. And many of them have a very short lifespan. <clears throat> and incidentally, even some of those with a short lifespan can be fairly deadly. We also, by looking at the sort of big picture, we can look much more closely at things like the weapons used by terrorists, their targets, their tactics. And here we have an interesting situation where we have so much interest in terrorism from Hollywood and from the media. So we get our views of terrorism, you know, from Claire Danes and Bruce Willis and Arnold Schwarzenegger. And, you know, the typical Hollywood plot has these incredibly sophisticated plots, long-term planning, all kinds of high-tech weapons. But the reality, when you look at the 170,000 cases we've now assimilated over, um, over about a 50-year period, is these are very rare. That The reality is most of it's guns and bombs, uh, mostly readily available weapons, mostly not uh, years of planning, mostly using relatively low-tech sorts of approaches. Um, the high-tech attacks with long-term careful planning, the kind of 9-11 attack, is incredibly rare in the database. And so you know, by looking at uh, the whole context of terrorism over a long period of time, we get much more of an idea of just how rare uh, chemical, biological, radiological cases are. And, and thankfully, to this point in time, we've had no nuclear cases. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and I, th I think this is a really important point to emphasize there that this issue about the outliers, because if you have when if and when you have an event like 9-11 um, or something like 7-7, as we had over here in London, that oftentimes policy can be guided more by the outliers more than by what is what is more regularly uh, taking place. So by having a database like the GTD, you can clearly and simply show, look, this, is, this isn't the norm and show exactly what is the norm and therefore be able to develop policy with that kind of evidential background as well. I, yeah, I totally agree with that. And in fact, uh, many of your listeners will know this term black swans, which, you know, tries to highlight the idea that 
policies oftentimes directed by these incredibly rare events like 9-11, like 7-7, like a handful of international attacks, even though they are incredible outliers. So, you know, looking at 170,000 attacks now for 50 years, 9-11 is still the deadliest attack in our database. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's interesting how this plays out, John, because at the same time as I say that, that, you know, that we shouldn't base all of our policy on incredibly rare black swan events. At the same time, it's interesting if you tra trace back, there's a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy dimension to all this. So if you look at 9-11, without 9-11, we wouldn't have had this sort of military response by the United States in Afghanistan and Iraq, or it certainly wouldn't have played out like it did. Without that military response, all sorts of other things probably wouldn't happen, including mass immigration from war-torn countries in the Middle East, uh, which is completely changing the face of politics around the world, certainly in Europe and the United States. So on the one hand, our message is, you know, put terrorism in context and realize that these events are incredibly rare and that if policy is based on them, uh, you're going to be off a good share of the time. On the other hand, I'm struck by just how much of a game changer something like 9-11 uh, and to a probably somewhat lesser extent 7-7 have been. Yeah, oh, completely. <laughs> and you mentioned at the beginning of that answer that, and it, it probably will surprise some of our listeners, that you have seen a downturn uh, in 2014, in the past couple of years uh, in international, uh, internationally in relation to, to terrorism. Has this been worldwide, or do you, have you seen that, that there's been uh, a surge in some areas with a steep decline in others? Like, could we be seeing displacement taking place here by any chance? Or? Well, not surprisingly, of course, with terrorism, it's always complex. But I believe it's the case that four of the five top countries in terms of total attacks declined in 2016. And not just attacks, but also fatalities are down. The story is probably complex, that we are finding that about of the five uh, countries that have had the most worldwide attacks, four of them saw declines in terrorist attacks, and I believe also in fatalities in 2016. But then at, at the same time, we have to think of things like Afghanistan, where the Taliban have become so dominant in terms of controlling uh, the, the sort of military situation there that perhaps there are fewer attacks because of that dominance, that they do not need to, to do attacks to establish their, their authenticity. And then you also are finding increases, you know, worrisome increases in places like Turkey and so on. But still, you know, there is some cause for a little bit of optimism with regard to even heavy hitters like ISIS, the number of attacks have been declining and even groups like Boko Haram have been seeing big declines. And this is it, this is a hugely important point that you're raising. It, that's raised in the opening four words of the title. It's that you can only tell so much from the the quantitative data, these quantitative data that the GTD can give you. But you need to also understand the context surrounding it. You need to understand what's going on around it as well. And with that in mind, like. What would be the caveats that you would give people who are using uh, the GTD? What would be the, the things to watch out for? What would be your, your key tips uh, in how to, well, use, to get the best out of it? Yeah, our advice, I think, uh, across the board, and I think certainly my colleagues Aaron Miller and Laura Dugan would, would share this advice, is that the GTD is the beginning of your quest for a research project, not the end. So, for example, when we've done our own work on the IRA or the ETA or ISIS, we started with the GTD, but then we've really tried to dig in and and try to do the best job we could to validate uh, some of the trends and make sure that uh, what we're coming up with could be supported by evidence. And uh, in terms of warnings, um, look, this is based on open sources. So in places like uh, Syria, where there's a huge amount of violence, where it's very difficult to establish uh, a strong free press. Uh, it's sometimes incredibly difficult to sort out whether you've got terrorism, insurgency, uh, conventional war, organized crime, vendettas, mm -hmm. uh, ethnic cleansing. 
you know, sometimes you're getting a very short amount of uh, information or very little information from the free media, and it's very difficult to sort out those sorts of cases. So I say, especially in war-torn areas, this is one of our biggest challenges is trying to figure out what's going on on the ground in those situations. Yeah, and I suppose it's it, one of the trickiest things in situations like that, as you're intimating there, is is deciding whether something is terrorism or not. And even in today's attack, last night's attack in Las Vegas, uh, there's, at this at this moment in time, in the hours afterwards, it's unclear whether it's terrorism or not that we're looking at. So how do you go about deciding, what's the process of deciding whether to classify something as terrorism or another form of violence? So in the early days, because we... Uh essentially uh, inherited this database from Pinkerton, we started with their definition, quite frankly. It turns out that they were hiring ex-U.S. Air Force people to collect the data. So for the whole time Pinkerton was collecting data, they were run by two gentlemen who had Air Force intelligence backgrounds. So they basically used the U.S. military definition of terrorism, which turns out, I think, is not too bad. It's, it's fairly general, and I think a lot of people would say it's, it's a halfway decent place to start. So basically, it started with looking for uh, violence or the threat of violence with a political motive committed by a non-state actor. Once we got the data and started thinking about terrorism from a, a research academic standpoint, and this is back in the early 2000s, we very quickly realized that there was no universal, no universally accepted definition of terrorism. It's you know eluded, for example, the United Nations up to this point in time, and even uh, there's quite a bit of variation across countries. Sometimes even within different bureaucracies within the same country. So we wanted to build a database where people could use the definition that they thought was most defensible. And if they didn't think, for example, that uh, attacks on the military were ever terrorism, we set the GTD up to make it easy to strip those cases out. So we've also added some additional criteria that are easy to search for in the database. So for example, we include attacks against the military in quite a few situations. Uh, so if you disagree with that, you can get rid of those. Uh, we also make distinctions, for example, about whether the military is there in a peacekeeping mission, like, for example, a lot of the United Nations missions. So some people would say that would be like an attack on a UN peacekeeping mission would be terrorism, but an attack on a military uh, in intervention during war would not be. So we've essentially tried to give uh, both uh, researchers and the policy community some options in terms of how they actually are going to go about defining uh, the topic. And for the listeners who are interested in really getting down in the weeds, and I would say anybody who wants to analyze the database should start here. Uh, we put the entire web, uh, the entire uh, code book on our website, on our START website, uh, which is now running some 130 pages. And in that code book, we go into much greater detail about how we produce, uh, you know, how we decide whether something is terrorism or not. And before moving away from the GTD and going on to the, the research that's influenced your career, if you had, looking into the future, if you could uh, advance the GTD in every, any individual way, what would be the, the one thing that you would like to bring into to the database that you haven't been able to so far? Well, so one of the things that I think would make the GTD a lot more useful, and we actually have a project that's, I think, just getting underway to do this, but only for the United States, is to link GTD to individual level data. Mm -hmm. So uh, for your listeners, the GTD is based on events. So we try to pick up every terrorist attack that happens anywhere on the planet. But we find out about terrorist individuals or terrorist groups only through the event. So we don't know about the individuals committing attacks except insofar as they show up in events. And likewise, we don't know about groups. So I think one of the things that we've been flirting with, and there are some individual projects that have tried to do this already, uh, but not for the whole world, is to link, for example, terrorist individuals to terrorist events terrorist groups to terrorist events, and and also to follow uh, in even more detail some of the work that uh, Laura and Erica Chenoweth have been doing to try to link responses of government to terrorist events. So I think with those sorts of linkages, the utility of the GTD would be even greater. 
Yeah, I, I think that would be a really good, um, a really good addition. And for those who want to hear more about uh, Laura and Erica's research referred to by Gary there, if you go to episode two for Laura's research and episode uh, five for Erica discussing her research, and both of them discuss that the research that they did together, specifically looking at um, at the the situation in Israel as well. And I think it it's some great uh, some great research that was carried out within your description of the what the GTD has shown us. You talked about the transition of the the dominance of of terrorism within Europe to South America and so on. And it struck me that one of the pieces that you've picked, and, and you talked about the different, the changes uh, in terrorism that you've seen, and it struck me when you were talking about that, one of the pieces you picked as influencing your research was by David Rappaport, and in his uh, piece, Terrorism the Fourth or Religious Wave. And you can see his, his wave model of terrorism fitting in with, with what you said. Why, why was it that this piece influenced you, and what do you think that it, it can really give to the readers? So, yeah, I think what's really brilliant about uh, this piece, and as well as some, he brings this up actually in a, a number of his different articles and books, but that when examining terrorism in the GTD, we find waves everywhere we look. The GTD itself, as I, as I mentioned a moment ago, is essentially two big waves with a kind of lull in between. Uh, aerial hijackings look like waves. Suicide bombings look like waves. Improvised explosive devices look like waves. And in fact, terrorism in the GTD fit pretty well into uh, Rappaport's two most recent waves. And ironically, I find that this wave business is also one of the few optimistic things one can say about terrorism. That, in other words, terrorism does not stay in the same place forever. It tends to move. So if the past 50 years is a guide to the future, I would not predict that the same countries in 10 to 20 years are going to be the hotbeds of terrorism. I would not predict that terrorism will remain in the Middle East and in Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, where it has been especially prominent in the last few years, that eventually it moves on. And I want to see this, and maybe I'm, this is wishful thinking, but I'd like to think that people grow weary of living in violent circumstances, and eventually they come up with ways uh, to lower it. They come up with mechanisms to get over the violence and to move on. And uh, so I think uh, this, the fact that terrorism moves is actually gives us some notion of, of optimism, not in the short run, but in the long run. Yeah, and it's, it's hard to find something optimistic to say about terrorism. <laughs> but it's, uh, yeah, this is something that, that people should uh, look to and, and should be able to, to see that while it might seem quite dark at the moment in, very, in, in a lot of areas that there that history has shown that it doesn't uh, it doesn't continue ad infinitum it it does it does come to an end in in certain places as well as this though like when we look at the gtd we're not seeing the causes of terrorism we're seeing the manifestation of terrorism you're seeing the attacks but you haven't just been influenced by research which looks at what terrorism look like looks like you've You've been influenced by the research of Martha Crenshaw and her research on the cause of terrorism and also research by people like Ted Gurr looking at explanations of why uh, men rebel. What way did these uh, pieces uh, influence your way of thinking about terrorism? So, well, in the case of Martha Crenshaw, you know, Mar and Martha and I recently collaborated on a book um, called Countering Terrorism. And, uh, you know, it was just a real pleasure to work with Martha. So basically, to return to an earlier story, uh, after I found uh, myself uh, in possession of all of these terrorism data back in the early 2000s, and not having a background in terrorism research, I figured the best thing to do was surround myself with people who were far better at uh, knowing what was going on than I was. So I was able to get a small grant from the National Consortium for Violence Research that allowed me to bring in uh, Martha and Martha Crenshaw and, and Clark McCauley uh, to work on uh, common projects. And uh, so I purposely went after people that uh, had been working in this area for a long period of time. And uh, as your listeners will appreciate, Martha has this encyclopedic knowledge of terrorism cases. But more importantly, I think she's an incredibly critical person in terms of not just, uh, you know, accepting the fad of the moment. 
So, for example, when everybody was talking about, you know, the new terrorism following the rise of al-Qaeda some years ago, Martha sort of said, well, what's really new about it? You know, what's what's different than what was going on, for example, with the anarchists at the turn of the last century? And uh, same with arguments about the success of terrorist organizations. Uh, Martha is just a very deep thinker who goes beyond the obvious and I think has just made tremendous contributions to terrorism research because of that. Mm -hmm. um, Ted Gurr, uh, I mentioned because I was, you know, I was a graduate student at Indiana University studying history and sociology, mm -hmm. but I was very interested in cross-national crime rates. And very few political scientists, uh, particularly in that period of time, had turned their attention to crime. And Ted Gurr, I think, was an early pioneer because he talked not just about insurrection and political violence and rebellion, but also about crime. And uh, I was very influenced by Ted's work uh, as a graduate student. And then to complete the circle, I was very pleased that we were able to support some of Ted's work much later uh, uh, as the director of the START Center. We, we actually uh, supported some of Ted's work. And I was always struck by, uh, I, I worked quite a bit with political scientists before uh, directing the START Center. I was part of a group called the Democracy Collaborative, which was mostly political scientists. And the main goal of the Democracy Collaborative was to develop strong civil societies. And I was always struck by the fact that in talking to political scientists about what makes a strong civil society, people will talk about inequality, they'll talk about education, they'll talk about uh, building design. They never talk about crime, which as a criminologist, I think that's just so important that if people are afraid of being victimized by crime, they do not tend to participate very well in civil society, and it's just it's terrible to develop a strong civic life. So uh, Ted was, I think, uh, very instrumental in, in, in my thinking about, well, political science uh, can have something important to say about, uh, not just about insurrection and political violence, but also about crime. Yeah, and you mentioned that, um, that you're a criminologist, and that's what many people within our area will know you as someone who's brought uh, criminological research and criminological understanding and apply it to um, to the study of terrorism. And along with uh, your colleague Joshua Freilich, you've actually developed a handbook of the criminology of terrorism, uh, which is just published this year, 2017. Um, what do you feel that criminology um, as an area can really add that hasn't been added uh, by other er other disciplines to our understanding of terrorism. Yeah, I'm very pleased with this book with Josh Freilich. Uh, I'm very pleased to see there's been a growing interest in ter terrorism research among criminologists. So this book has 36 chapters, uh, includes work by many of the leading criminologists uh, currently studying terrorism in the United States today. And it's such a departure from uh, back in, you know, as recently as 2005. As you mentioned, I was the president of the American Society of Criminology uh, back in 2005, 2006. And I, I specifically remember asking a group of, of very uh, reputable criminologists whether they thought terrorism was a subject that should be considered to be part of, of their field. And I'd say about half the people there in the audience said, yes, it should be. So, you know, there were a lot of early contributions from U.S. criminology, like uh, Austin Turk did some work in the early 1980s, and people like Brent Smith and Mark Ham, criminologists, have been working on terrorism issues for a long time, but it's, it's a pretty small group. There was a little interest after the Oklahoma City bombings in 1995, but 9-11 <clears throat> was really the, the event that had the biggest impact. So now you see... Uh, funding from the Department of Homeland Security that's partly gone to criminologists, funding from the National Institute of Justice, funding from the National Science Foundation, uh, creation of, of the Minerva program, which has funded some criminology. And then most recently, uh, the National Institute of Justice has created this domestic radicalization and violent extremism program, which a lot of that has been funding criminology. The American Society of Criminology recently added a, a division on terrorism studies, and it's actually larger than many of the traditional areas of criminology, like white-collar crime <clears throat> and corrections. So I'm you know, very heartened by how criminology has really moved much more aggressively to study terrorism. Now, having said that, it is a complicated issue. Um, 
our criminology colleagues, Ron Clark and Graham Newman, a while back in a, in a very interesting article, said something like that terrorism is a form of crime in all essential respects. So essentially terrorism is just another type of crime. But in an article that uh, Laura Dugan and I did back in 2004, where we tried to drill into the, the similarities and differences, uh, we backed away from saying that it's the same, that it, there, it's very rare in, for traditional criminals to sort of see themselves as altruists or see themselves as doing something that they're actually hoping will benefit uh, mankind. So there are differences, but very important similarities. So I think it's one of these things where I, I think criminology has quite a bit to offer, but it's also not a panacea, that there are also important differences between terrorism and crime, and we shouldn't sort of uh, wallpaper over those differences. Yeah, I suppose if you're looking purely from a behavioral point of view, yeah, it's, you can see exactly uh, the, the application of, that criminology has. But then by putting on the motivational uh, point of view, by, by focusing on that as well, you can see the, the significant differences there. One of the things that people um, have said to, in this podcast, I'm thinking of the episode with Rashmi Singh in particular, is that there isn't the theoretical foundation being applied that there should be uh, within the area of, of terrorism research. And it really struck me that in your, in your uh, handbook with, with uh, Joshua Freilich, you had this section on theory looking at general strain theory, social learning theory, situational approaches, and so on. And what is it that you feel these criminological theories, rather than the international relations or poli-sci theories, can give us, can really make us move our understanding forward? So this is a great uh, example of, I think, what I was just trying to communicate, which is I think criminology has something to offer. We should definitely be, I think, incorporating criminology into this interdisciplinary effort to understand terrorism and responses to terrorism. But at the same time, we shouldn't expect a perfect fit. So, for example, my colleagues uh, at the University of Maryland, Mike Jensen, uh, uh, James pa uh, Patrick James, and Aaron Safer-Lichtenstein, have an article coming out in the journal Criminology where uh, the data are just from the United States, but we actually tried to test some of the leading criminology theories to try to predict when people would turn to violent extremism. And we found, for example, some support for social learning theories from criminology and some support for social control theories. We also found that common criminological variables like um, prior record and age uh, tended to be important also for predicting terrorist cases. But at the same time, uh, none of these theories were perfect, that lots of arguments that are very common in criminology did not seem to gain much traction when we looked at uh, uh, individuals in the United States who had engaged in radical extremism. You know, just to give one example, there's uh, my colleagues at the University of Maryland, John Laub and, uh, and Rob Sampson at Harvard, have done this work uh, showing that uh, for a cohort of individuals in the United States that had juvenile delinquency backgrounds, that a large portion of them turned away from juvenile delinquency after spending time in the military. So we looked at that in among American uh, individuals who've been convicted of terrorism, and we did not find that. In fact, we found a little bit of the reverse, that, that military experience did not seem to insulate you from terrorism, uh, even though it seems to, in some cases, with regard to ordinary crime. So I think... Um, you know, look, uh, the study of terrorism, is, I think, has to be an interdisciplinary undertaking. So we benefit from having not just political science, but psychology and sociology and other fields look at it. And I think along these lines, uh, criminology has a unique role to play. Um, and I, I agree with Rashmi that, um, that terrorism has probably been under-theorized. But I think also the other part of criminology, which deals more with reactions to crime, mm -hmm. is also important to mention, maybe even more important to mention when it comes to violent extremism and terrorism. So that I think when you really look at a lot of the recent programs to deal with violent extremism, at least in Western countries, a lot of them look very much like community-oriented policing, basically. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of, I think, our best uh, opportunities to at least reduce domestic terrorism look very much like uh, criminology issues, look very much like, you know, how do we make the police more effective? Yeah, no, and, and this is something that, that we've seen across the podcast when you uh, 
I, I'm thinking of the podcast with Paul Gill that a lot of our listeners will have heard so far or heard already. He would be echoing uh, similar themes to you to you there. You mentioned that we need to be a, and this needs to be an interdisciplinary approach. And you say that uh, one of the disciplines that should be utilized and is being utilized is psychology. And you picked out as the final piece that influenced you the highly influential friction, how radicalization happens to them and us by Clark Macaulay and Sofia Moskalenko, uh, who apply uh, criminological analysis and criminological theory to, to this issue of radicalization. What did you really get? What did you gain from, from their piece, from this book? Well, I, I cited the, the friction book from Clark and Sophia, but actually, as I, as I mentioned a moment ago, my connections with Clark go way back to, to 2000 when I was trying to get up to speed myself in terms of what researchers who were in this area much longer than I had been had to say about it. And so I spent a lot of time with Clark, and he and I actually served together on, the, on a Guggenheim board for several years as well. So what I think I really learned from Clark in particular is just how complex this growingly popular notion of radicalization is. And I know some of your other podcasts have developed. Uh, I know uh, Andrew Silk, for example, talked about it in the very first of, of the podcast you've aired, that early versions of radicalization, I think, were just very stereotypical. So you sort of have this version that the people move in kind of lockstep between radical attitudes and radical behavior. And I think uh, Clark McCauley was one of the first people that I knew and read anyway that got us out of this very simplistic thinking. And uh, this is made very clear, I think, in the book with Sophia, that they're able to demonstrate there are many complex pathways leading uh, to, to radicalization and terrorism. And I, I think many of your earlier guests uh, who have also been very influential in this regard, I mentioned Andrew Silk and John Horgan mm -hmm. and others as well, but I think this is a very important uh, conclusion, and it took, I think, policymakers a while to sort of catch up with that conclusion. Yeah, and even dealing with issues that you wouldn't normally see in terrorism uh, or in the psychology of terrorism literature, something like that they point out that the role that love can play, the love for a member within the yeah. group can play in drawing you in, it's not all linked to ideology. Absolutely true. Yeah, it's a, it's definitely a book that I, that I would encourage all of our listeners to read. And the final piece, you mentioned the work of Martha Crenshaw. You mentioned the influence that she had on your career. And at the start of of uh, of this this time with these data that uh, that you got together, you went to people like Clark Macaulay and to her uh, for to, to gain a greater understanding. And as you mentioned, you wrote a book with her recently, Countering Terrorism, No Simple Solutions. Um, in this, you talk about the atypicality of terrorist attacks, that it's not all the same. And because it's not all the same, as the title suggests, there are no simple solutions to it. Uh, why did you think, why did you feel that this was the key message to get across here? So I'll, I, I should lead off by saying, again, this book was in the works for something like seven years. Uh, it, it, uh, it takes a long time to get these things done. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think that the message that Martha and I really wanted to communicate here is that it's very important to put terrorism in context. So in other words, yes, it's a horrible act with far-reaching consequences. But generally, it's not existential. It's not like the threat posed by nuclear arms during the Cold War, or perhaps even today in the conflict with North Korea. And it is so important to keep this in perspective because with terrorism, it's quite possible to overreact. Uh, one of your earlier podcasts, I think from Laura, actually talked about jujitsu effects that mm. Clark Ollie and others have talked about. So we can make things worse. We can enact policies that will not only not do what they're supposed to, but will make things worse. And it may be very hard to undo these policies later in time. So what Martha and I were trying to strike for in this balance was uh, of, you know, of all of the sorts of things where it's so important to have evidence and so important to go into policy with objective facts, terrorism perhaps is, is one of the most important. And it's effective in part because it has such an impact on people. And so countering that message, I think, is very important. So the way Martha and I proceeded in this book is we sort of divided this into sort of two related themes. That first, 
for what what are the conceptual things that make terrorism complicated, uh, which Martha took responsibility for, and then I took more responsibility for looking at the methodological themes that make terrorism complicated. And, you know, just going through some of the characteristics of terrorism along these lines, you can see how potentially it can have outsized impacts. So, you know, when we actually look at the database, at the at Global Terrorism Database, it's striking how rare terrorism is. Uh, you know, we're inundated with news about it, and, you know, we've just got another breaking news event as this podcast is being uh, aired or being taped. But at the same time, you have to keep these things in perspective. So we looked at, for example, all of the, da all of the attacks in the terrorism database in the GTD back to 1970, and we count about 10 attacks that killed 300 or more people, about 10 attacks. Mm -hmm. So this is horrible. I mean, no one will dispute that. This is a, a huge, uh, huge loss of senseless loss of human life. But if you put that in perspective for a half century, in the United States alone, we have something like 38,000 traffic fatalities every single year. So we have essentially uh, the number of people killed in 9-11 happening every month on the nation's highways. Worldwide, I think we have something in the order of 500,000 homicides a year. So it's important to keep these things in perspective in terms of the rarity of the events. And, you know, if terrorism in general is rare, mass casualty attacks are even rarer. Uh, you know, they're very unusual. And now that we have this regime where we hear about attacks pretty much anywhere in the world, there's a kind of drumbeat so that... Uh, you know, I, I'm planning a trip to Europe to, to attend a conference, and people are saying, well, you know, you can't go to Paris. It's, there are terrorist attacks, and, you, you know, you can't go to Barcelona. You can't go to London. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, even though you have these situations oftentimes where, in fact, like in the recent case in London, no one was killed, and yet it caused a huge amount of fear. And, you know, we are by no means saying that this is not devastating. You don't want to trade away basic fundamental rights, civil liberties. You don't want to end up with a regime that's worse than the one you've got, that, that throws out the values that you were exactly trying to sustain by having a rational policy. Yeah, and the, one of the things that's from this book, I think one of the most important uh, pieces from this book is when you look at the counterterrorism results, when you look at the results of uh, our reactions to these terrorist attacks. And you asked the question in the title of that chapter, can effectiveness be evaluated? Why is this such an important question to ask? And do you believe that it can be evaluated? And if so, how? Yes, I think it is. It's a key question. You would think that uh, as much money and as much attention as terrorism gets, we'd have a lot better answers to this question. And um, I know that you probably are going to pivot to this question about, you know, where do you think the field's going? But one of the things that I think is very important that to, to recognize is that I think we've actually made really strong research strides when it comes to uh, understanding terrorist individuals, terrorist groups, terrorist movements over the last uh, couple of decades. I think some real, I mean, we've, we're beginning, we're making real progress in developing a science of the study of terrorism. But we've really, I think, lagged behind in terms of understanding what works on the part of governments. What counterterrorism programs are most effective? What kinds of uh, violent extremism, anti-violent extremism programs are most effective? And there's been much less research, I think, on those topics. And in fact, uh, it's very difficult to do that sort of research. You know, it's hard enough to gather information on terrorists, but trying to get information from governments about what they're doing to stop terrorism is even more difficult. So uh, this is why I think you know I'm I find uh, it especially interesting to look, for example, at the work of of Laura Dugan and Erica Chenoweth, looking at uh, how different sorts of responses by governments uh, sometimes work very successfully and oftentimes do not, and sometimes make things worse. Yeah, and it's it reminds me as well of uh, previous guests uh, Kurt Braddock and Bart Sherman as well when looking at these de-radicalizations and reintegration uh, campaigns and Sarah Marsden's as well, that oftentimes we're reliant for evaluation on the very people who are engaged, uh, the very organizations who are uh, implementing these, these, um, these counter-terrorism and de-radicalization um, uh, 
programs. Um, and so we need sometimes independent analysis rather than the, the individuals who are engaged in it themselves to be, to be our, our guide for the evaluation on whether it's effective as well. Um, one of the things as well, the, pre, the chapter prior to that is entitled Who Did It? The Attribution Dilemma. And this is one of the things that stands out to some people as a surprise when looking at the GTD data is that you can't attribute the whole time who is responsible for the attack. You often hear of terrorism being a form of communication and therefore if the groups are trying to communicate and trying to gain an effect, you would feel that it is necessary to... Um, to be able to say who it was uh, had engaged in this attack and on what they were trying to achieve. Why, why do you think that you, we don't always um, find these claims of responsibilities? Or when can we not really trust these as well? Yeah, and you can see that, uh, you know, how critical this is because most governments, they have some form of, you know, what we could call deterrence theory. So the idea is, you know, you want to strike back at uh, the group that just perpetrated a particular event. And so if you don't know who that group is, it obviously makes it much more difficult to come up with, with a rational policy. Uh, I think yeah, it's true. About half of the cases in the global terrorism database, we are not able to make an informed guess about who the perpetrator is. And by the way, this varies a great deal, both by region of the world and over time. So we're much better at uh, predicting who the a group responsible was back in the 70s and 80s. The number of cases where we can attribute responsibility has actually been declining over time. It's, uh, we're much better at knowing who did it in Western Europe and in North America and in Latin America than we are in places like Russia and the former uh, Soviet states. Uh, so there's variation both across time and across space. So why would this be the case? Well, for one thing, I think attacks are now being launched by loners more frequently who are working more or less independently of any specific group. Uh, so there's no specific group to be identified. In other cases, we've got very general information like uh, you know Protestant extremists or Muslim militants but not uh, sufficient information to assign responsibility. In still other cases, there may be multiple claims. You have different groups claiming responsibility, or there can be false claims. So you can get more than one group claiming the attack or a group claiming responsibility when in reality it had no connection to the attack. Or you mentioned uh, in this developing story that's going on right now in Las Vegas, where apparently ISIS is claiming that they are claiming responsibility for this attack. But you start thinking, well, what does that actually mean? And, you know, how do you go about proving that? And what does responsibility mean if the individual that's involved had, you know, was never uh, in a training camp with ISIS and, and perhaps even had no communication with them? So um, all of these things are extremely difficult. And, you know, they have political consequences. Like I'm thinking back to the last U.S. election where, one of the issues that came up repeatedly was Hillary Clinton's handling of the attack, the September 2012 attack on the U.S. State Department facility in Benghazi, Libya, which resulted in the death of the ambassador, Christopher Stevens, and three other Americans. And during this period, uh, there was a big debate about, you know, who, who was responsible. And the fact that, uh, that we didn't know immediately, I think a lot of people, uh, the public, sort of saw that as as you know being disingenuous or perhaps even lying about it but that's not that uncommon of a situation where we don't know uh, I mean there are famous cases like uh, the Lockerbie uh, Scotland bombing where to this day we're not exactly sure what happened so um, again this is a kind of a stereotype that we tried to get over by looking at not just one or two cases, but 170,000 cases over a half century. Yeah, and it, like there, the other cases that I, I'd be that would come straight to my mind in relation to this would be the Madrid train bombings, where ori originally the the politicians in Madrid in Spain were saying that this was ETA. Anders Breivik, exactly. the people were saying that this was Al Qaeda, or Al Qaeda inspired. So, and these, it's this, these. Uh, immediate reactions can have an effect as well, even though across time we can uh, gain a, a greater picture. Um, and it's, it's something that 
that is often ignored. There are some some key researchers who've looked at it, but it's it's sometimes uh, ignored when looking at uh, at this this issue of terrorism studies. But I've realised we've we've um, we've been uh, talking for close to to an hour here, and it's that's around the length I like to keep these episodes. So you. You referred to it there that you you felt that I was going to bring the the interview this way, and you're you're right in presuming it. How what, how do you feel the the state of terrorism research is at the moment? Do you feel that there is the stagnation that uh, we've we've heard about from Mark Sageman, or do you think otherwise? No, I, I you know I know Mark well, but I disagree with him on this point. I think we've actually come a very long way in the last two decades. And if you go back to Mark's essay on this theme. I think he was, I think he had probably uh, a much uh, more optimistic view of how science informs policy than perhaps is the reality. If you take my home field of criminology, for example, I think we've had a huge impact on policy, but it's by no means a perfect one-on-one fit, that even if we were doing a far better job uh, of understanding terrorism and reactions to terrorism than we have, I suspect politics is still politics, and there's going to be a lot of ability of, uh, of politicians and policymakers to ignore uh, what we see as the facts. But you know, having said that, I think we have developed a much stronger understanding of both the causes and consequences of terrorism. In fact, this podcast is a great example. You've already lined up dozens of guests, and I'm sure could easily line up many more, all with important research to share on this topic. And I think this just would not have been possible in 1995. Uh, I know at the Start Center, I'm very proud of the fact that we have on our website something like a thousand research articles and book chapters published by members uh, that have been funded by our research consortium. And there's also been a big range of new educational opportunities opening up. So we have these undergraduate programs, graduate programs, the study of terrorism and homeland security has become a kind of rapidly growing area. So uh, I think we've made some real progress. And I look at, you know, the database I probably know best, the Global Terrorism Database. So when we started in as recently as 2005, we were basically working on note cards, uh, computerizing note cards. Many of the original ones were handwritten. And now we basically go through about 2 million articles a day we tried to cover uh, translations from 72 languages in order to produce this database using algorithms, using uh, language filters, using Boolean methods, and so on. So the sophistication of the operation has just really uh, moved. It's almost a revolution, actually, in terms of what's gone on with automated data collection. And I mentioned the GTD, but START actually has probably seven or eight other databases like this that. Uh, have gotten way more automated over time. Uh, Also, advances in geospatial research is just amazing. Like, uh, I know criminology has been very influenced by this as well, but satellite technology has really uh, amped up the impact on something like terrorism, where you're trying to track uh, where events happen. Uh, The original Pinkerton data did not have uh, geospatial information, and we've added it after the fact to the cases, and we certainly have it going forward. Uh, Also, I think there's been huge advances in the integration of databases that we were talking about a little bit earlier, that pulling together not only terrorism data, but data on war, on insurrection, on ethnic cleansing, on hate crime, or on ordinary crime. And I think we're right at the very beginning of this, but I think there's going to be uh, growing interest and uh, growing research on social media platforms like Twitter. Uh, We're already seeing, uh, for example, the Crest Group in the UK. uh, Start has done some work in this area as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think we're going to see some really uh, important developments along those lines. And I think, as we talked about a little earlier, I, I find it really exciting that this has been a very interdisciplinary effort, that there's been a lot more interest in the past two decades from psychology, from criminology, even from political science, but also from areas that you wouldn't come think about immediately, like computer science and mathematics. So I think we're making real progress in terms of understanding terrorism. Although I would also go back to an earlier point and say we barely scratched the surface when it comes to understanding counterterrorism and government efforts to control violent extremism. Yeah, yeah, no, I I completely agree with everything you said there. And it's are there any uh, areas, any disciplines that 
you think haven't engaged that you would love to see engaged that you think would have something more to add? Well, I guess, uh, so in other words, new areas of that look po promising. Uh, well, yeah. as, as mentioned in, uh, in the book with Martha, um, I think we need to do to get a much better understanding of the strategies taken by governments and which of those are effective and under what circumstances and which, uh, you know, actually are either not effective or perhaps even make things worse. One of my personal frustrations, and this has been more of a problem in the United States than in other parts of the world, is uh, getting access to prison populations. Mm -hmm. And I know some of your earlier speakers have talked about this. But we've had, we had funding to do a project on the U.S. Bureau of Prisons uh, seven or eight years ago, and uh, we got all the way through the human subjects, uh, issues, et cetera, et cetera, and were eventually turned away. And since then, a couple of other researchers, I think including John Horgan, were turned away by the U.S. Bureau of Prisons. And so here in the federal system, we probably, I don't know exactly, but I'm guessing we have something like 500 people serving time in in U.S. federal institutions for terrorism-related charges. This would be a fantastically interesting group to have information from, and yet the government has so far not allowed that to happen. So I think that's, that's some low-hanging fruit that I really think we need to, to do more to explore. Um, I mentioned social media. I think social media opportunities are very exciting. They're going to be very interesting. Uh, we've been doing some research using Twitter and other platforms, and uh, I don't think social media will be a panacea by any means, but I think uh, having this huge amount of data uh, collected in a very different way than sort of traditional social science is offers some really interesting uh, opportunities for additional research, and also perhaps opportunities for responding to terrorism. So. For example, I think there's a lot of uh, interest in, in the sort of echo chamber effect you get in social media so that when people have, uh, you know, they're planning a trip somewhere, you suddenly start seeing hotels and rental cars coming up. But the same can happen when you're looking at, uh, you know, Hamas or Hezbollah. So that uh, understanding how those echo chambers work, I think, is going to be a very important area for future research. And also, how do we combat misinformation on these public websites that have become critical for providing information to people around the world? Uh, or even further, could these platforms ever be used to de-radicalize individuals or at least get people to be less likely to engage in violent behavior? And then also, uh, I think linking together databases. I think there's a lot of really uh, a lot of opportunities here. We're, and we're, I mentioned earlier we're working on a project that will link uh, GTD-style event data together with individual-level data and with group-level data uh, from other databases. And I think that is also an area that's ripe for uh, for future progress. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. And I think that's a that's a lovely message to end with about the, the opportunities that we've got moving forward and where we can move to as an area um, looking at this this uh, complex uh, topic of, of terrorist involvement and terrorist activity. Gary, thank you so much for uh, for being a guest on, on today's episode of Talking Terror. For anyone who wants to uh, read uh, any of the pieces that were referred to, both uh, Gary's own research as well as the research that influenced him. If you go to our website, uel.ac.uk slash TERC, there are links to each of the pieces referred to here. And I would also recommend go onto the GTD website and and have a play around, see what, what it is, what it's showing. And might surprise you what, uh, what uh, the trajectory of events has been. Be sure to engage with us on Twitter at T-E-R-C-U-E-L and tweet at us with the hashtag Talking Terror. Be sure to join us next week as well where I won't be doing the interviews but my uh, colleague Andrew Silk will be uh, sitting down and interviewing Dr. Kumar Ramakrishna about his research into terrorism and counter-terrorism as well. So until then, goodbye. <laughs>